Court. Well, I'm very happy to see so many of you here tonight for really what I think you're going to find to be a very rich experience. Um, I'm uh, pleased to say that the Sheffer Fund for Catholic Studies has funded uh, Kathy's visit here this evening. She's also part of Faith Week, and she's also sponsored by Pax Christi, which is a uh, Roman Catholic uh, peace group here in the city. Small but powerful. Right, Bill? Where's Bill? Yeah. Um, Kathy and I and a group of students have just been in, up in Baca, Colorado, where we've had a, uh, a tremendously lively uh, couple of days up there talking about peace and nonviolence and some of the problems of the world. And uh, I, I don't have to uh, introduce Kathy to you, um, to many of you, because many of you already know her from uh, different venues. But uh, just briefly, she, she was uh, born in Chicago of an Irish Catholic family. And she brings uh, with her all of the deficits of such beginnings. Um, she's, she's, uh, and she'll tell you more about that. But she's, she's loaded with Catholic guilt in just a lot of different ways. It's a, huh? She's a, could be the driving force behind her life. She's uh, one of the... Uh, Founders of Voices in the Wilderness, which was started in 1996 uh, in an effort to uh, bring some uh, measure of honesty and compassion to the to the uh, uh, sanctions. And according to the United Nations and other human rights groups, over a half a million children died as a direct result of those sanctions. That so we couldn't get medicines and. Uh, basic uh, um, materials in to, to help children with diseases that were pretty curable. So Kathy and her friends decided to break the law and to cross the, cross the line and bring some of those things into Iraq. And much of what they did was, was it was real aid that they brought, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of aid. But in terms of the big picture, it was also kind of symbolic. But she brought attention to the deaths of those children and what was going on over there. Um, Kathy was also a uh, nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and if I was voting, she would have received it, but I wasn't voting. Um, I, I guess what's, so much of her life is inspirational to me, but one of the beautiful things is, uh, for me is when the Gulf Wars were uh, in progress, Saddam Hussein was praying to God for victory and and uh, for his troops and his government. And on the other side of the ocean, George Bush was praying to God for victory for his troops and his side. And when both of those contenders in this violent war were praying to God for help, where was God in all of this? And Kathy and her friends said, God is with the poor. God is with those people upon whom the bombs are falling, not with the people who are dropping the bombs. And so Kathy along with others, uh, went, she went 26 times herself to Iraq. She organized 70 delegations to go to Iraq. And her most recent one was she was in Baghdad during what our country called shock and awe bombing. And she wasn't there hurting people. She was there embracing children and trying to comfort people that were uh, the victims of those explosions and those bombs and that, that uh, 
uh, strife that was going on. And uh, anybody who does that kind of stuff is a saint in my book. And without uh, much more introduction, uh, I'm going to present to you Kathy Kelly. Kathy. Well, hello, good evening. It's been a great privilege to be here in Colorado Springs and also up at Baca, and lovely to see some familiar faces here and also a good number of brand new faces to me. I hope that all of you will have chances to connect with one another again in the future in this very, very crucial time. And I, I'm so respectful of people who will come out to think together about some very, very difficult issues facing all of us right now. Um, I myself come from a, a really energizing and wonderful situation, uh, thanks to people who organized Faith Week and to the Bijou House and Pax Christi and others, and very specially with great thanks to Steve. I've been part of his class up in the mountains, and um, last night we watched a film about Archbishop Romero, and it really was quite wonderful to see how that chispa, that spark, could transfer from one generation to the next. Believe me, those students were absorbing that film and hearts were beating together in a real desire to uphold what Archbishop Romero stood for. You know, he said, me they may kill, but my blood, it will rise in the Salvadoran people, but that blood is rising, I believe, in people all around the world who want to put an end to the repression, put an end to the killing, which is what Romero begged for. I'd like to say a little bit more about myself by way of introduction, mostly to make sure I persuade people that if anybody came from a more ordinary background than mine, it would be just plain frightening. Um, I grew up on the southwest side of Chicago, and um, we thought our mom was a mutant because the Kellys only had three children, and everybody else in our neighborhood was up between 9 and 12. The Leahy's had a dozen, the Lindens had nine, and there, what was wrong with our mother? And so we did what uh, Roman Catholic kids in those days would do. We were in front of the living room couches praying a novena to St. Gerard, the patron saint of pregnant mothers, who was framed and on the wall. And for those of you who know about novenas, it's not a one-night deal. You're on your knees for nine nights in a row on, a, on an easy one. And so, uh, well, my brother Jerry was born. And so then about 11 and a half months later, my dad went to Mercy Hospital on a cold December night with my mother and came back. And when he came in the door about 1 o'clock in the morning, we were jumping all over him. Was it a girl? Was it a boy? And dad just said, both. And he walked over to the wall and took St. Gerard off the wall and <laughs> put him in the drawer. And that was the last we ever saw of St. Gerard. And I don't even want to tell you how long it was before I ever figured out that it wasn't my fervent prayers that were popping those babies into the world. So I not only came from an ordinary background, it really wasn't very sophisticated. Um, I was pretty fortunate in many ways, grew up in a very secure neighborhood, although it was a neighborhood that I think you could call a crucible for some of the most severe problems that ailed society in the 50s and 60s in this country. Believe me, they weren't problems we could put a name toward. There was severe, harsh, dreadful racism going on in our neighborhood, but we very rarely ever heard that word. We certainly didn't hear about sexism, but believe me, the duties around the house weren't being equitably shared. And this was the height of the Cold War buildup of weapons, armaments that were aimed against the Soviet Union. Wealth and productivity of the United States increasingly was going toward what 
Dwight Eisenhower had named as the military-industrial-congressional complex. He actually put in congressional, and Scoop Jackson had told him, oh, Mr. President, you better take that word out. You have to work with that Congress. But that complex was growing, but we never heard the word militarism. So, yes, I grew up in that crucible of racism and militarism and sexism, which was very much a part of those growing up years, but we felt in our family, I think, quite secure. So why did I turn out a bit different than my brothers and sisters? I'm sorry to call so much attention to myself. Um, good old Catholic guilt has already clicked in when I realized this, but um, I do want to stay with this a little bit. I asked my mother, she, she died in September of last year, but I had a chance to spend a lot more time with her before that. And I asked her, when did you figure out that I might turn out to be a little different from the others? And she said, well, you never said a word until you were three years old and we were very worried for you. <laughs> but once you started, you never stopped and it was very difficult for me because I was home with you all alone. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I think there was that. But I attribute much of what might have been a little bit um, different alternative in my growing up years to the fact that in an upper lower class, lower middle class family on Chicago's southwest side, we didn't know that doctors and lawyers lived in houses and had ordinary lives. We didn't see them anyway. The only professionals, quite honestly, that we ever saw were the nuns. And the nuns, there was a lot about them that I actually found quite interesting. They wore the exotic garb in those days and they lived behind convent walls and they seemed to be fairly cheerful. They were a pretty young bunch. We never were getting our knuckles wrapped, at least certainly not me. I was teacher's pet. I was quite sure that I might very well join them. But the thing I want to most emphasize is that those nuns never gave any visible sign of having even the slightest interest in accumulating personal wealth. Were they ever paid anything? No. Nothing? Never. They didn't earn income. If they did, maybe by the time I graduated from high school, they might be earning $50 a month or something, but that went right to the order. They shared everything in common. They lived extreme simplicity. And I really have to think about that witness that they entrusted to a generation and ask myself what's happened. And I know that many of you, I see Bill Selzman here, and he especially went out of his way to make sure that the nuns who in Colorado went to missile silo sites and planted flowers were people that many could appreciate for their ongoing witness. Um, but I have to ask myself, what happened to that witness of the nuns who also, these good sisters, we were sure, were taking care of poor people elsewhere in our city and probably all around the world. And Sometimes it seems that in the eyes of other people all around the world now, we, in our generations, are looked upon not so much as those who are the caregivers and the ones who extol taking care of other people, even if you don't have anything much for yourself, but rather that we might be looked upon as people who at times have a, a callous disregard for poor people. And I think that has everything to do with the question at hand with regard to war-making and peacemaking in our time. I would like to kind of govern what I have to say tonight with a parameter, knowing that my mother has figured out that I didn't have an off switch after age three. I'd like to just confine myself, if you will, to several stories about roads. 
And I guess ask you to indulge me as I go back in reflections and storytelling about Iraq that has to do with various roads and then hope that we could together perhaps draw some conclusions in further discussion. And I'd like first to go back quite a distance in time to 1991, and that was the first time that I ever went to Iraq. I went to Iraq with a group called the Gulf Peace Team. It was a very idealistic effort to interpose ourselves between the warring parties um, the original idea was to have a team on the Saudi side of the Iraq-Saudi border, another team on the Iraq side of the Iraq-Kuwait border, and a team on the Kuwait side of the Kuwait-Iraq um, border. And the Kuwaitis said, that will not be possible. And the Saudis said, no thank you. And the Iraqis said, yes, this is a very good idea. Please, you can put the camp here. And they wanted us just immediately across from Saudi Arabia's town, Arar, and that's where a camp was set up. Was something better than nothing? I think so. But anyway, I was one of 72 people from 18 different countries in this encampment. And as it turned out, um, when it looked like the United States ground troops might, in a pincer movement, actually come out as far as where we were encamped, the Iraqis said, okay, it's time to get going. And the camp was wrapped up. We were taken to Baghdad. Then a very big bomb exploded about the distance between here and maybe a, a closest parking lot. And the Iraqis again said in the middle of the 1991 war, that's it. We, we aren't at all able to guarantee your safety. We must take you out. I think there might have been other reasons, but we were evacuated out of Iraq along a road which we could tell was being steadily bombarded. As we drove out in the road from Baghdad to the border, we could see um, a smoking ambulance. We saw a bus that was turned over that looked like a passenger bus. We saw little tiny passenger vehicles. Even the station chief from CBS had been in his Toyota, and he'd had to speed up and almost turned over because the bomb had hit near to where he was. So that road was definitely not a safe road. When we got out to Amman, Jordan, this peace team asked itself collectively, well, now what? The war is still going on. Is there some witness that we could give on behalf of peacemaking and perhaps some accompaniment to people who are going to be suffering grievously because of this war? And we came up with what I thought was a very, very good idea. We would put together collectively all that we had in terms of medical supplies or medical relief, which wasn't much. I think it amounted to two boxes of Band-Aids and a couple of bottles of aspirin, but we'd ask Jordanians to help us out and we'd form a medical relief convoy and travel between Amman and Baghdad as often as we could along that road, the only way out for refugees, the only way in for humanitarian relief, and try to more or less safeguard the road. And we knew it was a good project because the UK embassy and the American embassy begged us, please don't do this. And um, anyway, as it turned out, a Jordanian millionaire thought it was a very good project. And Nidal Suktian volunteered to give us a semi-truck full of powdered milk for our first convoy. And we said, well, thank you. And he was also willing to give us a driver and an interpreter and the very expensive petrol. And we thought, well, home free, all we have to do is make banners. And my job was to ring up the media. And this I had done dutifully. But NBC called us. And NBC wanted to cover the departure of this daring-do little convoy heading back into Iraq while the war was still going on. And we said, well, that'll be fine. And actually, most of the people on this team from other countries didn't know NBC from XYZ, but I knew this is a big deal. 
And um, the person, Mary McSomething, was arranging to actually have a full film crew with several cameras, and we would be in a vacant lot across from the Menar Hotel at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, that's great. A couple of phone calls all firmed up. Well, the morning of our departure, somebody from the United Nations finally got us through our collectively thick skulls, dears, your convoy isn't going anywhere with that powdered milk unless you think you're going to ram a United Nations checkpoint and cause an international incident. You can't bring powdered milk into Iraq. Don't you understand? There are sanctions. It doesn't matter if you've got people from the United States or the UK. It doesn't matter if you're do-gooders. These are the sanctions. This is the law. Oh. Well, all of a sudden, we had a morning of full speed-ahead tasks. We had to offload the millionaire's truck, get all the powdered milk off the truck because he wanted it back, find little tiny, they call them lorries, smaller trucks. We had to make sure that we were able to get as much alternative stuff that we could bring in. There, We had a list. There were some pharmaceuticals we might be able to get in. We had to make sure that we were able to get our own independent driver and petrol and translator since we lost the one that the millionaire was going. It was a very, very fraught morning. And in the process of all the calls and the moving around, I forgot. I plum clean forgot about Mary McSomething and the NBC team in the vacant lot waiting to film us. And it was raining. She was so angry. And that night at the Jordanian Red Crescent office going to get final stamps on visas, who do I encounter but Mary McSomething, livid. And she looked at me. I, I apologized right away. I said, I'm sorry, I forgot. And she already knew the story, what had happened. And she said, I will assure that you and your team never get coverage from NBC again. And I said, well, that's fair. And again, I'm sorry. And then as she walked away, she was kind of regal in her bearing. And she looked over her shoulder and she said, and I shouldn't even tell you this, but offloading the truck was the story. Now then, I was ashamed. Imagine if in living rooms across the country in 1991, people in the United States had understood that even powdered milk for babies couldn't go into Iraq. This country that seemed not to be able to stand up to the United States arsenal in any meaningful way, suddenly people might have understood there are real people that live there. And I felt such chagrin. I felt so badly about that. And I realized that I can tell this story to you and feel almost those same emotions because offloading the truck never stopped being the story. And it's still the story today if you're the mother of a child 300,000 of whom in Iraq today suffer from acute malnourishment. It's a disease more colloquially called wasting. Those little babies never recover from it. Their brains will always be affected in their musculatures. And the 60% of water in the rural areas that's poisoned and contaminated and the 20% in the urban areas poisoned and contaminated means that these wasting Starving children, if they get poisoned water, are quite likely to become among the numbers of hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children who never wished us any harm, who never committed a crime, but who have been consistently, brutally, and lethally punished. 
I'd like to tell another road story, and it also goes back to 1991. And maybe in some ways it's a stereotypical story for many places where people are desperate for relief. But it was a story that I encountered for the first time. I was with a Palestinian driver named Taha, and Taha was legend for his nerves of steel. He was so brave, he would keep on going back and forth into Iraq during the war, bringing in relief supplies, bringing out refugees. And so at the point when I was with him, the war had ended, and Taha was still involved with medical relief convoys, and I was in the passenger seat driving out of Iraq. Well. As we drove along a road that was virtually empty, very few people could afford the pet petrol at that point, these drivers, they're like pilots on a runway, you know, they drive very, very fast. And he was going full speed, and all of a sudden, a little bevy of kids that seemed to be between three and six years old, toddlers, you know how they run, came spilling down the roadside embankment, throwing out their arms, touching their lips, and making mimicking gestures to form chapatis, the bread of the poor, and they were begging to stop that truck. And Taha swerved, and he said, we cannot stop. We have not all what they want. And we stop, there will be many more. And I could tell he was upset, but he sped up. And then as soon as we got maybe, I don't know, 10 miles further, another little group of kids, same thing, came spilling down the roadside. Are these kamikaze toddlers? And Taha did the same thing. He avoided them, and he kept going. And I was wondering, are there adults up there orchestrating this? How, how desperate can people be? And then a third wave of children, it was like a gauntlet, another wave of these children came spilling down. Taha swerves, and I noticed that his knuckles were white. He was clenching the steering wheel, and he hunched his shoulders over that steering wheel, and he sobbed, and he sobbed, and he sobbed. Taha, the man with nerves of steel, broke down because we couldn't stop that truck on that road and give those children what they needed. I felt so proud when I met Kelly Doherty. She's from your town, Colorado Springs. And she was so much a part of her unit, the Colorado National Guard unit, that even though she really was against the war, she couldn't separate herself from people that she trained with as a medic. And so she went over to Iraq, but then they assigned her to be a military policewoman. And when she came back from Iraq after a tour of duty, she decided that she was going to take a big risk and not go back and join Iraq vets against the war. And when I met her, this is the story that she told that it just seemed to be kind of indelibly marked in her mind. She said that often they were assigned to go out on the roads and be military police to protect trucks that had broken down. Well, these roads during the summer months especially are like ovens, and so tires break and trucks break down easily. And they'd go out to guard the truck, and she said they'd have to get in touch with the owners. And sometimes the owners were Halliburton or Kellogg, Brown, and Root. And they'd get in touch with the owners and say, well, what do you want us to do? Your truck broke down. And she said quite often, most often, the orders were to abandon the truck, but first burn it. Burn it. What was in the trucks? Well, a lot of times it was water or food. Well, why would anyone say burn it? And I guess the reason given was that the owners were afraid that if the truck were just left on the road, Iraqis might come out and either loot it or maybe fight over it. And I guess I would think that any Boy Scout troop in Colorado could probably sort that one out. So that road story has been important. But there's another one which is so very, very important 
for me to keep on reminding myself of. And actually, sometimes I, I think, did I make that up? And I was kind of relieved I, on the DVD that's out on the back table. You can see this footage. The, the fellow who took the footage was kind of shaking because it was a very fraught day. And um, so to, to actually use it, we had to slow it down. And it looks like the participants are walking on the moon. But the day that he filmed was the day we could finally pull cameras out of our bags in Baghdad because clearly the Iraqi government was gone and the United States occupation had arrived. It was a day that was so fraught because we had heard at our hotel, I stayed in this five-story hotel with families and Bill and Jeannie Derland were there with us in January and we anticipated the war together, we lived through the war together. We, we hoped we could be some protection for these families and then um, we realized we might be the ones jeopardizing them because what was really the greatest threat that morning that I'm thinking of was that we heard looters were only 10 minutes away. And the looters were coming down streets with brick bats and hose and just whatever they could use to bash in windows. Maybe some had Kalashnikovs and they were racing through whatever buildings they broke into and taking whatever was, well, we had passports, which were very valuable. And obviously we Westerners had some money to get ourselves back home. And so we realized we were perhaps placing people at risk. And we were making little maps, hiding our passports and putting away our money and trying to remember where we'd stashed it and telling the people at the front desk, whatever you do, if somebody wants to take us hostage, don't you pull out any guns. We all signed forms saying that we understood the risk. And it was you know, really quite nerve-wracking. And then all of a sudden, little eight-year-old Dima came speeding down a second-floor hallway, screaming, Jindi, Jindi, soldiers, soldiers. And we raced up to look out the windows, and as far as the eye could see in every direction, there were, at this T intersection, people processing in armor personnel carriers, Humvees, tanks, bulldozers, jeeps, all beige, all parking right outside our window. And life has its contradictions. I was one relieved pacifist. The Marines got there first. <laughs> Well, I think um, they must have looked up at the windows and saw us and wondered, where's their spaceship? Who are these people? And we were lined up along a second-floor balcony over which we had hung enlarged vinyl pictures of children whom we'd grown to love very much in Iraq and, and some other Iraqi people. We had some banners, and one said, courage for peace, not for war. Another, rather more bluntly, said, uh, war equals terror period. And I remember looking down at the Marines as they came up out of their hatches. It looked like little mushrooms were coming up. And actually what went through my mind, kind of stream of consciousness, was uh, the good witch Glinda in the Wizard of Oz when she says, okay, children, you can come out now, because these <laughs> heads were kind of... When I looked at their faces, they all looked like, you know, the Gerber baby jars in the row at the grocery store, excruciatingly young. And then one of them did something I thought was so smart. He climbed out of the hatch, perched himself on the rim, crossed his legs, pulled out an army issue novel, and started to read. And believe me, that just had a calming effect. And I, I remember noticing right then, oh, the birds are still chirping. Well, then one of them called up to us. Who are you? And Neville uh, called down, Well, a peace team. And then another Marine called up, Well, where are you from? And somebody called down, Boston, 
novel called Australia, Perth, Australia, somebody else, New York, Chicago, and then one of the Marines called up, hey, you from Boston, are you a Red Sox fan? And that kind of broke the ice a bit. I looked over at my friend Cynthia Bannis, a 73-year-old woman from upstate New York, and I just kind of offhandedly said, gee, they look kind of thirsty, don't they? And Cynthia dropped her corner of the banner, said, I'm so glad you said that. Of course that's the right thing to do. The next thing I knew, Cynthia was heading over toward where we had bottled water stacked up from the floor to the ceiling, big, heavy six-packs of bottled water. And Cynthia had picked up two, and she was trudging down to bring bottled water to the newly arrived Marines. And I sort of stood there, clutched a moment, and then I realized, of course she's right. Every household we'd ever entered in Basra, in Baghdad, you name it, people had said whether they were desperately poor or well-to-do, they always sat us down, boiled water, gave us tea, asked us to stay with them, expressed so much hospitality. And I remembered, oh, I do have some dates under my bed. So I ran and grabbed a box of dates and went behind Cynthia. And, of course, I'm so nosy, I went to the fellow with the book. And I asked him, could you just tell me, what are you reading? And he said, Heart of Darkness, ma'am. It's my 13th time reading it. And that's Joseph Conrad's novel, Exploring Themes of Good and Evil. It became the film Apocalypse Now. And then two guys looked sort of friendly, so I headed over toward them with my dates. And one young fellow said he'd never eaten dates before, but it was better than the MREs that they'd eaten so much of lately. He took a fistful. And then he said, well, my name's Tom, and that fellow over there is Jerry. That's right, we're Tom and Jerry. We're both from Indiana. You could call us Hoosiers, ma'am. You want to see a picture of my kids? And what I can tell you is that over the next 10 days, I and other members of our team, we all checked with each other daily. We never heard a rude word. We never heard a crude word. For 10 days, coming from Marines who just made their way from Safwan, the border with Kuwait, up to Baghdad. In fact, much to our surprise, really, here are some of the things we heard. The first person, really, that came over and talked to our team was the commander. And he said, don't blame these young guys for what happened. In the heat of battle, he said, I made some hasty decisions, and it's I who will have sleepless nights. Well, he wasn't the only one who had sleepless nights, and there were many nights up until 1, 2 in the morning on overstuffed chairs in the Alfenar Lounge when these guys would talk to us about what they'd experienced, and, and some of it was really horrible, you know, dreadful battle scenes. And yeah, some spoke with some bravado, but I remember particularly one young guy, he talked about the battle scenes that he'd been through, and um, then he lowered his voice, he really whispered. He said, there was one night, ma'am, when we didn't know was the military, was they civilian, because we saw fatigues lying on the ground. And so we shot everybody, but I hope it never registers here, ma'am. You know what I mean? I, I hope it never registers here. There was another young fellow, an African-American man from New Jersey. His name was Harris. And he used to always carry his gun right in front of him. And the first thing he said to me was, I'm so glad I never had to use this, ma'am. So glad I never had to use this. And he said he was assigned to bring up prisoners in the rear. And as he told us more about himself, he had joined the Marines because he had a daughter who had been born with a sixth finger 
and he wanted to get her the operation she needed, and he couldn't get her that operation because he was never ahead enough with money, but he was going to school and he was going to work. In fact, he was never even getting enough time to see his daughter. He said, I joined the Marines because I wanted to get me some self-respect in this world, but I never wanted to use this. Very adamant about that. And then as we got to know him better, he said that there was one night when he was at a checkpoint with another Marine and a car started coming forward and they'd already shouted to the car, stop. And how could the Marine know that in Baghdad traffic signals, this often means keep going. But the Marine shouted out again, hey man, I said stop. Well, maybe the driver didn't hear, maybe the driver didn't understand English, but the driver kept coming. And so the Marine, conscious that there had already been, at that point, one car bomb had exploded elsewhere and he didn't want to be the one responsible for his buddies being blown up, so he picked up his rifle and he shot right into the front seat of the car. And as Harris told us, that left an orphan in the back seat the same age as his daughter. And Harris said, I wish he would have shot the tires. You know, ma'am, why didn't I tell him to shoot the tires? And there's so many young people that will return to the United States who were part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and they'll never be freed from these kinds of memories. And, of course, a plethora more. But I want to remind myself constantly that those young Marines whom I first met repeatedly said, I wish I could be part of rebuilding I wish I could be part of reconstruction. I see these people don't have much of anything. The army's going to come and they're going to be doing the rebuilding, but we wish we could be part of that. Well, I ask myself now today, as two of my friends were just arrested during the meeting of the House Appropriations Subcommittee, Mike Ferner and Ed Canan, they're part of a 34-day fast in Washington, D.C., we're trying every trick in the book that we can use to try to alert people that the $65 billion being appropriated to spend on Iraq today is not going toward what those Marines wished for in terms of reconstruction and rebuilding. You know what? A hundred million of it is going toward reconstruction, no prisons, yes, 10,000 new prison beds. But you can scan every line item of that document. You'll find military procurements for every branch of the armed services, but you're not going to find significant rebuilding. And I think again about my mother, and I, I dearly loved my mother, but okay, here's what she said as I sat at the edge of her bed when I'd come back from Iraq in January of 2004, and I had been down to prisons in Iraq, and I'd been with people who had done their very, very best earlier in their lives to shake off Saddam Hussein and had landed in prisons or had to flee the country. And this is what my mother said, because my mother's got a combination. She had a combination of common sense, mother wit, wisdom when it came to anything to do with raising children and Fox News. <laughs> so my mother said, Kathy, what you don't understand is that the people of Iraq should have thrown Saddam Hussein out a long time ago, and they could have and they didn't. And so we went over there and did it for them, and they ought to be grateful, and they're not. Where do you start? <laughs> I was in Iraq, you know, during March when the ceasefire was declared. 
For a reason I have no idea, the Iraqi government sent us down to Karbala, a city we hear about now, but most people didn't know Karbala, Fallujah, um, Nasiriyah, Najaf, Amara, Khut, Basra. People hadn't heard of those cities. But we know a little bit about Karbala because our team had seen that this was one beautiful city. We had all hoped that we might someday be able to go back to that beautiful city. But when we went back after the war, it was not a beautiful city. It was hideous. There was uh, smoke and dust rising from rubble. There was um, gunshot in many places. There, the, the trees had all been cut down. People were walking around disoriented. There had been damage to a mosque. And we went into a hospital, and our feet stuck to the floor. The blood was so thick on the floor of that hospital, and we were utterly bewildered. The U.S. troops hadn't come this far. Who did this? Why did the Iraqis let us see it if it was they that did it? We were utterly confused, and I was with a fellow named Henry Sells who had been through the Lebanon War, the Civil War in Lebanon. He said, look up, look up. And there were bullet holes up around the rooftops of buildings that had to come from air power. And as we drove out of Karbala, he began to suggest that it must have been Iraqi air power, but, but the Iraqis lost the war. What? It wasn't until I got back to the United States that I began to understand, and it's not a story that journalists have often told, but in the 1991 ceasefire, when the world's largest arsenal was parked at Saddam Hussein's doorstep practically, there was a negotiation in which the Iraqi generals, meeting with General Schwarzkopf and American generals, asked the American generals, can we keep our helicopters? And the American generals said, yeah. And then the Iraqi generals said, can we keep our attack helicopters? And the American generals said, yes. Those attack helicopters wasted no time. Saddam Hussein's attack helicopters lifted off, loaded with machine guns and ammo, and they went down and with superior firepower were able to mow down people that thought that they were expected now to liberate their cities, that George Bush wanted, George Bush Sr. wanted them to rise up in Karbala, Amara, Najaf, Nasiriyah, Khut, and Basra. People were mowed down, maybe in the thousands, I don't know, but those who weren't killed were rounded up, many of them who were suspected as being resistance fighters. They were taken to prisons they were tortured, many were executed. Those who were released had to flee. Why did the United States want then to keep Saddam Hussein in power? Allies, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, who would help pay for that 1991 war, did not want a Shia community a strong Shia community, possibly aligned with the theocratic state next door in Iran. Sound familiar? to achieve an independence from Saddam Hussein. So how did you keep Saddam Hussein in power, keep that strong arm on the people, crippled externally, but strong internally, sanctions, economic sanctions would work just fine. Who would be punished directly by those sanctions? Children under age five, elderly people, sick people, poor people, but primarily the children. But it worked. That status quo worked all through the agonizing long years when you couldn't find the word Iraq in a newspaper. For years, we would open up the Middle East Digest of the New York Times just hoping we might see one word about Iraq. Nothing. The only person that existed in Iraq throughout all that time in the eyes of the politicians and the media was one person. Guess who? Saddam 
He was the only one that mattered. So no, people in Iraq today might not be grateful to us. Yes, I think many of them wanted the war. It was like love at the end of a fist for a battered woman, hoping you could maybe schedule the beating, get Saddam out, yes. But they thought that there was going to be that rebuilding and that reconstruction that the Marines had themselves stayed up at night talking about. And it hasn't happened, and it's not clear that it will happen as the appropriations monies go to projects that will line the pockets of people who are part of the ruling elite of this country now by virtue of the fact that they've learned how to make weapons and sell weapons and store weapons and bring weaponry to both sides of conflicts around the world and then deal with transporting armies that guzzle up the available fuel resources. It's a foolish direction in which to go. But no congressperson in this country can stand up to that huge lobby. I'm talking about Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, Alliant Tech, Westinghouse, General Electric, companies here in your city too. These Congress people think, well, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot and end my career to stand up to this behemoth. The military industrial Media congressional complex has a stranglehold on education, and it is strangling us. I'm very close to the Christian Peacemaker team, Bill and Jeannie also, and four of their members were taken. It would be about 105 days now that four people who were doing their best to bring attention to the plight of people that were in prisons in Iraq. And believe me, the last road story I would tell you is that of going down to a prison in the furthest reaches of Iraq in the south, horribly desolate place, someplace, no place anybody would want to be, not a prisoner, not a U.S. soldier. And these kids have been swept up and stashed down there for nine months by the time we got down there and were able to just begin to start a process of trying to bring attention to their concerns. Well, the Christian Peacemaker team, at great risk to their own lives, stayed in Iraq all through these years of occupation, doing their best to build a database that would tell where all of these detainees are so that their loved ones who don't speak English could at least get some help trying to figure out where they were, what they were charged with, was there any way to bring some relief. And four of them were taken. I don't know who took them. We don't have any idea how to find them. But I was kind of desperate to find on the Internet, was there any news being reported about them? And I stumbled across Rush Limbaugh's website. I'd never listened to Rush Limbaugh a day in my life. But I thought, well, maybe he knows something. So I went and I read the transcript. And Rush Limbaugh said, I thought I'd be more happy than I am. I am happy. But I thought I'd be more happy. Now, let me tell you, I'm happy because this is great when a pacifist might be quivering and sniveling in front of a captor and maybe praying that the U.S. Marines will come and liberate their sorry selves. But the reason I'm not more happy is because maybe it'll be a, you know, a deal where they'll get liberated and they'll say, oh, our captors treated us so nicely and we'll have to listen to that. And then somebody called Rush Limbaugh on the phone and said, oh, Rush, you got to see the Christian Peacemaker team's website. You know what they have? They have a program called Adopt a Detainee. Can you believe it? And Rush Limbaugh just went ballistic and said, no, I can't believe Anybody would adopt one of those scum. And I realized Rush Limbaugh can't know. I mean, he can't say to his 
audiences or his bosses, hey, I'm going to take off and go over to Iraq and go down to the south of Iraq and try to go inside of a prison called the Buka compound named after a fireman who was killed in 9-11 and try to check out some young Iraqis that have been in prison there for seven months on no charges. He can't leave his radio station most days. He's coping with some kind of rehabilitation for, a, I think, an addiction. I mean, the guy's got, it, there's no way that he can really educate himself right now. Now, it's a sorry scene when he has access to educating millions of people in the United States. But the, really, the, the challenge to us then is how do we educate one another so that we won't be so victimized by falsehood, by propaganda, by educators who just simply don't seem to be too clued in to this idea of truth force. And part of the education is the difficult task of looking in the mirror and recognizing that in places all around the world, people wonder, are we a people who believe that people who already have so much are entitled to get more? And in a lot of ways, it seems that that's why we have this huge military arm extended all over the globe so that we can continue living the way we live. But you know what? I now have to wonder. I was recently in prison, and these prisons are bursting with prisoners, and one-fourth of the world's prisoners are imprisoned in United States prisons and jails. And I look at university students, many of whom are going to be graduating like indentured servants with loans that they won't be able to pay off for 10 years. And 45 million people in this country don't have health insurance. And the educational standards don't match those of other countries. So if the projection of this immense military might is for the purpose of assuring that we would kind of have an edge and live better than other people, if you just look on it, you know, forget ethics and forget compassion, just look at that. Where is the social progress? I don't see it. And where is the security when, in fact, if we utterly refuse to ask the common sense question, what are the grievances of people who would by now be so angry toward the United States that they might support a random terrorist attack on our country? Instead of spending $437 billion on military buildup, why not at least just ask that question? And often it's a pretty quick discussion. People don't like to live under occupation. I go back to the sixth grade history the nuns taught me about the United States forming because people in this country who were not the first settlers, they'd taken the land from the first settlers, but they then decided they didn't want foreign bases on U.S. territory. And they didn't want to take their precious resources and give it over to the mother country. They didn't want to be colonized. They didn't want to live under occupation. It seems like people all around the world understand what was pioneered here in the United States, that you don't have to live as a colonial, um, subjugated group of people. People all around the world understand it, and we're the ones who perhaps are having a hard time catching on these days. So where is the hope? The hope was certainly with the group of people that I spent time with in the last four days, up in Crestown, the hope is in the fact that so many young people took time to come here tonight. We're deeply, deeply grateful, and we wish you all the very, very best in trying to create a world wherein it's easier to be good. And the hope is in the fact that um, this I guarantee you. 
you could go to a corner in Baghdad where there are shoeshine kids hanging out. And especially if their older brothers were shoeshine kids, you could start humming the first bars to the United States Civil Rights Anthem, We Shall Overcome, and those kids would finish it out in Arabic and in English, next to the theme song from Titanic. <laughs> One of the most popular songs amongst kids in Iraq was, so let's hope that that anthem becomes ours, that we won't be afraid of people who tell us there are no options, there are no alternatives, that we'll keep searching for that further invention of nonviolence, that chispa, that spark, that went from Thoreau to Tolstoy to Gandhi to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to Dorothy Day to Cindy Sheehan and to students at Colorado Springs. Thank you very much. Thank you. There's a microphone here. Those who might wish to um, offer ideas, comments, suggestions, criticisms, announcements can come, certainly. I don't know if we should have a formal time for announcements later or afterwards. Okay. Anything anybody would like to say? I'll head back to Iraq on April 3rd, I hope. A visa, we hope, will come through and would like to give more recent reports at that point. Thank you. Could we start with you, sir? You're right near the microphone, right? Well, oh, okay. Well, well, there was a question I've had for a long time, and it's probably off the subject, and maybe it's something that you don't feel like you can answer, but I've, I've been thinking um, uh, just in terms of U.S. policy over in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, We've probably kind of forgotten that it took a hundred years of practicing democracy for our culture to accept, like, the voting rights of women and so forth. But here we have this extremely male-dominated uh, tradition in the Middle East, and I kind of I just wonder how they might be taking this. I I, I don't know if it's imposed or or what that this um, like accepting female suffrage overnight. And if you think that that's like something that the United States is pushing, or is it something that they're just doing on mm -hmm. their own? I have to say I'm, I, I'm not very adequate to answer that. I would certainly say that my main concern in terms of females in Iraq today would be the 300,000 mothers whose children are dying in their arms. Um, feed those children first, and that seems to me to be of paramount importance. Um, there are so many new emerging identities in Iraq of people who weren't able to speak up much before under a very, very repressive dictatorship. Um, but I, if anybody says the people of Iraq think, no matter what they finish that sentence out with, I, I think there's a good reason to raise your eyebrows. I mean, who can speak for the people of Iraq? You've got Kurdish people in the north from at least 15 different 
um, perspectives. You've got the Shia people and the Sunni people, and communal warfare, intercommunal warfare is happening now. I mean, it's, you, it wouldn't be correct any longer to say that everybody is in an anti-occupation mode by any means. Um, so where are the women in that? Um, I think that the, keep in mind that along with the childhood suffering from disease and poisoned water, the International Monetary Fund has imposed on Iraq expectation to pay back $125 billion of debt rung up by Saddam Hussein, much of which was to purchase weapons that he aimed against his own people. The International Monetary Fund, the United Nations, the World Bank, they could take that debt and say to all the creditors, you'll have to wait. You will just have to wait. First we see these children getting fed, and then we'll talk about paying you back what you think these people owe you for money Saddam borrowed from you for weapons. That's not happening. Instead, on December 23rd, when nobody much in the media was, you know, paying attention because it was Christmas, the World Bank cut an agreement with the interim Iraqi government saying that from now on, Iraqis would, across the board, lose um, a substantial portion of the subsidy that used to go so that they would get their gas at very cheap prices. And where once it was three cents a gallon, it whoosh, went up to 43 cents. And people thought, we can't handle this. We can't afford cooking oil. We can't afford gas. Why do we have to pay this high price all of a sudden? There was great unrest, 10,000 people out on the streets the next morning. And the oil minister, Mr. Bar-Alum, protested. He said, this is a very bad time to put this through. January 1st, another day when the press isn't paying a lot of attention, Mr. Ahmed Chalabi replaced Mr. Ulum as the oil minister. And some of you have been staying abreast of these stories would know that Mr. Chalabi's reputation is tainted, seriously. That was an understatement. Um, so um, if we think about women and we, we earnestly want to think about what are their concerns. I think they don't want to find out next month, as is predicted, that they now have to pay for the ration basket. These are women who, who feel a deep abiding responsibility to care for their families. And they can't do it if they don't have food and water and medicines. The hospitals are in deplorable shape. And I'm getting this from firsthand imploring phone calls. My daughter, she was just shot through the mouth. Her tongue destroyed, her teeth destroyed, her chin broken, and we took her to Baghdad because we think maybe we get better help there. This is a woman from the poorest area of Basra. And the doctors couldn't read the x-rays because they were so grainy, but they tried to do reconstructive surgery anyway, but they didn't have any anesthetics. Imagine reconstructive surgery without anesthetics. And the conditions were so filthy inside the Yarmouk Hospital, one of the main hospitals in Baghdad, that she took her daughter home, besides which she was too afraid to go and visit the daughter because the roads were so unsafe. So yes, we must think about the condition of women and children. And I think the Constitution is important. But the issues that you know, would seem in our luxuriously secure situation to be the most important to resolve, um, I'm, I'm not sure that, that a lot of women in Iraq today would be thinking about, do I get to vote or not? I'm not sure. Uh, thank you.
Mm-hmm. Even Ted Koppel did an article in the New York Times recently and said that's the reason we went over there. Let's not mince about that. You know what, I just, a lot of our student friends are leaving, and I just want to make sure they get chances to ask questions, and April had her hand up there. Could we go on to discussion of the history later, and, and we'll continue with some questions first? Thank you. Okay, thank you. April, your hand was up. Well, those are certainly two very compassionate questions. I think a rule of thumb that we could place hope in is don't support dictators. When we would go to Iraq, 1996, 97, 98, up until the breakout of the Shock and Dock campaign, um, I never went, but some of my friends went to the, um, the museum in which Saddam Hussein showed off his paraphernalia of gifts that he'd received from other people. And one of the glass-encased prizes was from Ronald Reagan. It was a set of cowboy spurs. We put Saddam Hussein in power. There's no doubt about it. He, he w promised, more or less, that he'd subjugate Iran one way or another, and the United States didn't want to see Iran and Syria start to form a pan-Arabic alliance with Iraq right in the middle being supportive, and so that's how Saddam got into power, really. He promised the United States, I, I can take care of your concerns. And we helped keep him in power, as I said, when we could have put him out in 1991. I'm a pacifist. I don't go along with killing people. But nevertheless, it would have been quite feasible. Um, so when you think about some of the dictators in the world who've derived their support from us, you know, the United States in Central and South America had propped up and supported numerous dictators. When Indonesia invaded East Timor, the United States didn't let out even a, a, um, a, a hint of protest. The United States itself had invaded Grenada and Panama in the run-up to Saddam Hussein's decision to invade Kuwait. So I think what we need to do in this country is become much more emphatic about our concern for human rights and acknowledge, you know, look in that mirror, acknowledge that in the eyes of many people, one of the greatest abusers of human rights all around the world particularly now that we've got Guantanamo and Bagram and Abu Ghraib as, as iconically embedded images in people's minds that we care about human rights and that we are not going to support dictators. That's very, very important. Well, then how do you withdraw support if you don't use sanctions? Well, first of all, the economic sanctions never were directly targeting Saddam Hussein. He didn't miss a meal. They targeted the vulnerable people. But I'm not convinced that economic sanctions are the way to go. Sometimes people talk about carrots and sticks. And it seems to me the whole notion of carrots has been vastly understudied. If you take a look at the major think tanks in the United States, how many of them are being asked to figure out ways 
to follow April's question. Find ways to support societies that want to get out from under a dictatorship and find ways to make sure that health care delivery and water purification and food will be going to the neediest people. Now, I believe that Fidel Castro violates human rights seriously, but isn't it interesting that in this little tiny island, Cuba, under sanctions from the United States, has been able to send out healthcare delivery professionals and water purification specialists in places all around Africa, Central South America, so that they are beloved. Why couldn't we be beloved all around the world? Well, again, you look and see who's funding those think tanks. And it's not going to be bread for the world and Oxfam and the United Nations Development Program and the people who really know how to do this kind of community development, the think tanks are drawing their funding from the major weapon-making companies I mentioned. And who owns NBC, General Electric? Who owns Westinghouse, CBS? Check with Bill Salzman to find out about the corporate control over the weapons and space industry. That's the direction they want to go in. There simply is not discernible evidence that the United States is caring and concerned, concerning itself about people who might have grievances against us. If your next door neighbor had a house full of weapons and your next door neighbor was so mad at you that your neighbor said, I'm going to pull one of these weapons out and blow it right through your kitchen and kill you and your kids, unquestionably, you'd want to know what is my next-door neighbor so mad about? Now, it might be your next-door neighbor is mentally ill, seriously crazed. That would be one thing. But if your next-door neighbor had some grievance, you know, you keep on parking your car where he can't get into his driveway, or, uh, you know, you let your garden grow into her, her garden, then you could probably think, okay, we can deal with that. Now, what I want to pose is the question, are we seriously to think that all around the world, People who might have a grievance against us are just crazy, mentally ill, insane. Or might there be a possibility that we could pose the question and in a spirit of negotiation? I mean, we've got the world's largest arsenal. There's no question of a fair fight if another country feels that they can't survive because of our policies. And so what do other countries do? They can't go out and get themselves a nuclear bomb. They can't go out and get themselves uh, joint defense ammunition kits. So they, we know what kind of strategy will be pursued. We know what we can expect. But instead of spending this huge military budget that's not really going to affect those people that might want to launch an attack against us as a terrorist attack, why not start to try to see if we could learn the languages? of other people who have grievances against us. I mean, wouldn't it be great if Colorado College students knew that if they would undertake a language study of Chinese and Arabic, they'd be guaranteed tuition-free and be able to be guaranteed you know, serious, work, worthwhile work to practice their language skills? You know, what if we were to be helping to train and develop exactly the kinds of skills and, and make our young people feel sure that we so much need their skills in those directions, healthcare delivery, water purification, electrical development, that, that, that we'd, we'd prize them and we'd take, you know, a good chunk of that military budget and put it into educating our young people to help make this a world that would live more sensibly. 
And we haven't even started on the question of how we're depleting the available fossil fuels in this world so that the greatest threat that next generations face is not what a random group of terrorists could do in an attack. It's what we're doing to our air, to our water, to our ground as we guzzle up the available fossil fuels and water. Other questions, thoughts, ideas? I would like to say that in the back, um, I have this book called Other Lands Have Dreams, and I'm sort of embarrassed about peddling wares, but if anybody would like to buy it, it's $15. And there's a DVD that, that has some pretty interesting footage, um, Voices in the Wilderness in Basra for three months. We had footage from that time, the Marines arriving in Baghdad, and then um, some footage of um, kids in a school that um, actually learned a peace anthem and sang it to us. It's, 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 it's worth a look. Uh, that's $10. Um, I also know that there are some people who want to make announcements, and you've been very patient. Um, perhaps I, I should say it's... Well, let me then turn it over to Steve. With Yes, thank you. Well, that's... Thank you. Are you part of it? Oh, you're the founder. Oh, well, it's a privilege to meet you then. Oh, that's great. I mean, I know that Ardith Platy and Jackie Hudson and Carol Gilbert are probably very much tied into your hearts and minds here. So, some announcements, and first we'll turn it over to Steve. Thank you. St. Daniel the Prophet. Oh, okay. All right. The middle one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I'll see you later. Good. <laughs> um, I was always the nerd. <laughs> I, I, I never went to a baseball game. <laughs> well, Kathy, thank you very much. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm not ashamed to uh, hawk your books back there. She she only brought a few of them with. I wish she would have brought more, but they're very interesting, and they have a lot of anecdotes in there, not only about Iraq and her presence in Iraq, but her, there's beautiful stories in there about the women she met while she was in prison. And uh, if you need some uh, some very poignant reading about what we're doing to women who are in prison, uh, it's, it's there's some great stories in there to read. Uh, announcements here. Kathy, anyway, thank you very much. Glad to have you here. Uh, three announcements. One from Bill Salzman here. Do you want to use Well, either. Just wanted to make a quick announcement about something that's coming up uh, in early April here. Uh, we heard something about the Marines. They kind of represent that on-the-ground, face-to-face uh, dimension of warfare. And this town is very much tied into a couple of other layers of warfare. It's sort of the wizards of warfare who are very much a part of the killing going on, the bombing part of the killing. The U.S. bombs are not roadside bombs. They're ones that come out of the sky. And in this town, we have a lot of the people that work with the cyberspace part of warfare. 
in the outer space. Satellites are very tied in to how bombs are delivered. We have a symposium here yearly in early April where the people, Kathy mentioned, the Raytheons and Boeings and Lockheed Martins get together with that wizards of warfare in the military and have a big three-day bash. We have a uh, flyer out there which has our counter schedule on it and the contact information in case you'd like to help us uh, do a counter presence. Try to upstage them. That will be our goal. So hopefully we'll see some of you there. The little moniker for that is Help Fight Truth Decay. Uh, let's see, uh, uh, Dennis, where's Dennis? Dennis, you want to use that mic there? Thank you for your powerful witness, Kathy. You certainly honor us with your presence. I bid you greetings on behalf of the Pikes Peak Justice and Peace Commission, a voice for social justice and nonviolence in the Pikes Peak region for the last 28 years. My name is Dennis Apuan, and I am the program director for the Peacemaking and Sustainable uh, Living Programs. We have a table of information out on the uh, hallway if you'd like to pick up a copy of our newspaper. We are a community-based organization based on the principles of nonviolence, solidarity with the poor and oppressed, sustainable living, and social and economic justice. We engage our community as partners in creating social change by um, nurturing, educating, and organizing um, uh, on issues of local and national concern. I just wanted to quickly point out uh, a few of our upcoming uh, events in the next couple of weeks. This coming Sunday, March 12th at Camp Casey on the corner of Nevada and Dale, just two blocks south of this campus. At 9 o'clock to 9.30 a.m. will be a press conference and a send-off to our American veterans who have served the war in Iraq and are now opposing it, including Kelly Doherty, uh, a co-founder of Iraq Veterans Against War, who will be part of that group traveling to uh, New Orleans and Alabama. On Friday, March 12th, there is a critical mass bike ride, Ride for Peace, and there's flyers out on the lobby if you'd like to pick it up. On March 18th, which commemorates the third anniversary of the U.S. invasion and bombing of Iraq, there will be a peace rally at downtown Acacia Park from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And on Monday the 20th, there will be a local uh, lobby visit at three of the congressional um, offices here in Colorado Springs. Also, real quick, we are planning to place a half-page advertisement at uh, Colorado Springs Independent. There is a copy of the text we would like to um, articulate in this community, including a time to come to our senses, rebuild the respect of the international community, time to end the war against Iraq, time to bring all the troops home. Let us work to make this last, this, the last anniversary of this senseless war. Let this travesty, the bleeding, and the havoc not define our time in history. The cost for a nonprofit organization is upwards of $900, or two-thirds or three-quarters of our goal. So any donation that you could um, donate towards the publication of this ad is certainly greatly appreciated. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Dennis. And, uh, did you have an announcement? We have some more announcements. Could I make a spontaneous Quick. <laughs> Quick. We have more announcements. Come on. Here, here. Right here.
and for all hostages and detainees around the world. It's uh, from 12 to 12.30 at Camp Casey, and everybody is welcome to the prayers and comments and camaraderie. And thank you very much for my time, and I think I'll leave it there. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Wait, where's, no where's Eric? Is he? Sir? Just to show you that nothing is sacred, Eric is going to talk about St. Patrick's Day. That's right, and really quickly. Um, we have a chance to crash the St. Patrick's Day parade um, with a kind of a peace message. It's normally about green beer, and that's fine. It can be about green beer, but we're going to make it about peace this time. And we've got the bookmobile entered, and they've given me permission to have um, as many people who want to march along beside it and, and to have a band. So, the, so Manitou uh, drummers are, are coming, and everybody's going to be wearing green. If, if you want to join us, it would be great. Just wear green, and we have green T-shirts that have um, peace signs on them. And we're going to have this snake that's full of uh, six people that are uh, that are going to be driven off, hopefully being driven off like St. Patrick's did, but but in this case, um, by small children wearing uh, peace signs and little magic wands that have that have peace signals on them. And so hopefully we'll be making our point in a, in a parade that's not not supposed to be about politics at all. So. Um, if any of you want to come, it's at noon on Saturday, and either stop by the store, stop by Tunes, or, um, or or talk to me later, or just show up. Just wear green and show up, and we'll just um, we'll make this parade about peace. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Eric, and thank you all for coming. We uh, appreciate it. Hope you. Uh, yeah, another announcement here. Okay. I've been running um, Peace Happens this year. I don't know if you were here last year and heard about it last year, but um, we had a symposium in November, in December, and we are going to try to do a few more events, um, seventh block. So if you're interested in activism, if you like what you heard tonight, um, there's a couple events of Truth Decay, which Bill is putting on, that are going to happen here. Um, so contact me. I'm usually around campus. I know there's only a few students left. But um, we, we really are looking for people to help uh, put stuff together. So get in touch with me. Well, Truth Decay, yeah, um, Bill has them. These, yeah, I can give you one of these. Or, yeah, and so a couple events are at CC. Um, but there will, there will be other Peace Happens events, seventh block. And then there is, of course, eighth block. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what to say. I know G Gino Strata from Emergency, okay. which is a Here NGO great. in Italy, okay. started in Italy. Uh, Dr. Gino Strata, who, who, who does uh, hospitals without borders, he has been um, building hospitals, uh, makeshift hospitals in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Sudan, in Central America. He's going to be at the whole block. He's going to do some workshops. He's going to work with some of the professors here. John Gould is one of them. I'm another one. I'm Salvatore Bizarro. And um, he's going to be here for the whole block. So let's take advantage of this wonderful person. And I'm proud to say that he's going to get a Dr. Honoris Causa degree, just like Dick Cheney did wow. a few wow. years ago. Thank you all for coming. Good night.